Welcome to 7-Minute Torah, an exploration of the weekly Torah portion with me, Rabbi Micah Streifer. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to subscribe or comment or share it with a friend. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. This week's Parsha includes what might be one of the best-known and most important passages in all of Judaism. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Eternal is our God, the Eternal is one. It is a statement of God's oneness that both sits at the center of traditional Jewish belief and also serves as the impetus for Jewish action, both ritual and social justice. And that's what we're going to talk about with our guest today, Rabbi Denise Eger. Rabbi Eger is the founding rabbi of Congregation Kol Ami in West Hollywood, California. She's also served previously as the president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. As always, we're going to talk about the Parsha for the first little while, and then afterwards, if you'd like to stick around for the rest of the interview, we will talk about social justice, about the LGBTQ community in Jewish life, about rabbinics and coaching, and pretty much everything in between. Rabbi Denise Egger, thanks for joining us. So excited to be here, Rabbi. So you are a rabbi, an author, an activist. You're the founding rabbi of Congregation Kolami in West Hollywood, California. Virtual high five for fellow Kolami rabbi. Yeah, there we go. We 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 are we stick together as Kolami congregations, right? That's right. Uh, so I want to talk about all of that in a little while, but first let's talk about the parsha. Great. We're reading this week Vat Hanan, which is the second parsha in the book of, De- of Deuteronomy, the book of Devarim. And one of the most important things that's in here is, of course, the Shema or the first paragraph of the Shema. So let's talk about the Shema. This is such an important parsha. I mean, there's it's such a rich parsha, first of all, in Vat Hanan. And there's so many different parts. Of course, there's the the second version of the Ten Commandments that comes just before the Shema. But this one liner, if you will, really is what we used to call the watchword of our faith. I don't know what the watchword is, but I do think it means something that's incredibly important, that it embodies the central idea of God as one. Not that we don't talk about God in many different ways. We do use the word, many different words in Judaism to talk about God. We you know, of course, Adonai, we talk about Sur, rock, rock of Israel. We talk about God having many different attributes. But this notion that God is one is, I would call the central theological affirmation, which many say Judaism is one of the first religions of ethical monotheism, of course, is embodied in this one line in this week's Parsha. Right. It's the final and the most important word of that line, which, of course, we say every day, traditionally, morning and evening, Adonai Echad, God is God is one. God is this oneness that we experience in the world. Right. And that's exactly what I I like how I like to focus on it is that notion, not just that there's one God, but that God is oneness and that it affirms that that unity that we have first as a people, as the Jewish people, 
but I think that there's a secret hinted at, as our mystics would say, that it's really about humanity's oneness. Yeah, I, I think there's really something to that. There is this idea in Judaism that God is not only one, but also unique. The oneness of God is a uniqueness that I think is then manifest in this incredible oneness of humanity in the divine image in all human beings. I concur with you 100%. And that is what I I ask people to think about, not only when they say the, say the Shema prayer, but, but really as we meditate on it, to seek out that sense of unity, of that unification of your soul with God and the connection of your soul or that holy breath within you that God breathed into the first human being, that way mm -hmm. back in Genesis, um, to other to to everyone else and you know it always says you know in the Talmud when two people study Torah the Shekhinah God's divine presence dwells within well well I don't think it's only studying Torah I think when 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 we recognize each other's humanity God's presence dwells there so how does that manifest itself for you in terms of Jewish living you know everyday Jews say Adonai Echad we say it twice a day, three times a day, if you're saying your evening Shema also, how does that then transform itself into action? How should I be living in the world because I believe that Adonai Echad? Well, I think that the practicals we get in the next paragraph, right? We get that with the Aviahafta prayer in this week's, hmm. uh, that we, we put in our liturgy, you know, you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being, your essence, right? So the, it is the faithfulness, emunah, that connects with that plays itself out in a myriad of ways. Now we have some specific ways as Jews and that next paragraph of the Shema, the Ve'ahavta, tells it that you shall bind these words as a sign upon your hand. You shall put them on the doorposts. But mm -hmm. you can't just stop there. We have to look at the totality, right? Those are just the, those are the ritual expressions of that love. The totality is why do you then study Torah? To glean exactly how to live in the world to not place a stumbling block before the blind, to be fair in your weights and measures, to bring justice, to pursue peace. I think you have to study it, you have to taste it, you have to digest that Torah so that you can actualize it in the world. I'm always particularly struck by the line that says, you should um, bind them as a sign upon your hand and let them be a symbol between your eyes. So traditionally, that's the, the tefillin, the leather boxes that we put, literally putting the words on your hands and on your eyes. But I've always thought that in addition to tefillin, and I happen to love the ritual of tefillin, but I know it doesn't resonate with everybody. But in addition to tefillin, I think there's a message there about what you should be thinking about between your eyes and what you should have on your hands, that is to say your actions. So in other words, that our values, our Jewish values should sit in our hands, in the ways that we act in the world, and also in our minds, in the ways that we think every single day. And you know, that, that echoes the, the medieval theologian, Bahia Ibn Pakuda, who wrote about, you know, the, the duties of the limbs and the duties of the heart. You know, mm -hmm. he wrote about it as the heart, right? That's, of course, we associate heart with love, right? Um, as well as these actions in the world. And so I think, I think that is um, what's so powerful that they literally go hand in hand, if you will. But if we think about the Shema and the Vihafta as these 
love statements of the Jewish people, affirmations of love, and think about the Torah being presented to us, uh, or the and the Ten Commandments earlier in the Parsha. So you know that that's God's love message to us, and the Shema and our affirmations of the Shema are our love messages back to God. You really do have this sense of being in a sacred relationship um, with with God, and and this seeking for this union and this unity. Right, that our love that is expressed through the rituals we perform and through the words that we say and through the ways that we teach and also through the ways that we treat other human beings, that essentially love for God is expressed through love for people. Critically, it has to be. We can only express it when we recognize the divine in another mm -hmm. and, and, and that we are reflections of that divine. Which brings us back to that idea of oneness, of unity, that if God is, and you know, all right, you quoted Bachi Ibn Pakuda, I'm going to counter with Baruch Spinoza. Uh, Spinoza says, and that, that God, for him at least, is the totality of the universe. God is synonymous with the world. And so if God's oneness is also the unity of the world, then it reminds us that we are part of God. We are part of that unity that, you know, in a sense, I am part of you and you are part of me and we are connected to every other person and every other thing that exists, which is which is a, a, quite an amazing way to walk through the world, to think I am actually part of God and so are you and so is everybody else. Right, and I think the other, I think that, that, that oh, again, that notion, if we just go back to our Genesis story, you know, that God breathed the first breath into the first human being kind of tells us that. Humanity got animated with God's ruach, with God's breath itself. And so if that's true, then we all possess that peace with inside of us, even metaphorically. So I want to ask you a question and then ask you for a short answer, and then we'll take the longer answer after the break for those who are going to stick around for the fuller discussion. And the question I want to ask you is, is does this idea find expression in your social activism? Is that the root of social justice and Judaism for you as a rabbi? The simple answer, absolutely. It has to because we we have a, a sense of of first of all equality of all humanity. But when we see the inequalities that happen in the world and the things that we human beings do to one another to push people down and push people aside, well then if we are if we really are this B'Tselem Elohim created in the divine image. Then, then we have to be called to, to seek out ways to mend and fix and repair and help our fellow human being. That's an amazing note to end our Parsha discussion. Rabbi Denise Egger, I thank you for your wisdom, and I'm honored to be able to talk to you today. Thank you. That's our conversation about Ved Hanan, about the Shema, about God's oneness. If you're able to stay, there's lots more after the break with Rabbi Denise Egger. Thanks for listening. So let's continue this discussion, if you don't mind, that we just started about activism. Because I know that one of the important elements of your rabbinate has been activism. You are, you are deeply involved in social justice and racial justice. I know you've worked extensively with people with AIDS. Um, and you have and continue to fight for the rights of LGBTQ people. So let's talk more about this relationship between Judaism and 
and and social activism. How does that play out in your rabbin and in your congregation's life? Well, I think I think first of all, you have to we have to understand uh, what we were talking about previously is this notion that of B'Tselem Elohim. This is a core foundation, meaning that all human beings are created in God's image, no matter our station in life, no matter the color of our skin, no matter our sexual orientation or gender identity or gender expression, no matter our ability in the world, we are all made in God's image. And if you can assert that, that no one's higher or lower on the on the uh, uh, equality spectrum, well, if we assert that, then everybody deserves a fair shot in this world. Yeah. And, and do you find in your congregational life that this is a core element that members of your congregation are looking to express their Judaism, both through ritual, but also through social, social justice? Absolutely. It, it's, it's kind of the thread that runs through our congregation. Our, our synagogue was founded in the early 1990s in the city of West Hollywood, California, which is, was known as a gay Mecca. Uh, and so at the height of the AIDS crisis, just pre, before there were even uh, drug treatments for HIV AIDS, um, our congregation was rooted in that first in that a pandemic of those years um, and many lgbtq people lived live and lived and live in west hollywood um, so it, it really had a, a, a has a large um, majority of lgbtq plus people um, and so those notions of fighting for civil rights and at that time religious rights r-i-t-e-s uh, for uh, queer people was critically important and has been a hallmark of my rabbinate and that then extends into other issues, whether we're talking about homelessness, which our congregation is very involved in. We're partnering uh, very much with the Jewish Food Pantry as well as the Hollywood Food Coalition. We're right in, we're West Hollywood, California, but we're Hollywood, California is right there on our border. And, and there's a tremendous homelessness problem in Los Angeles County. It's, it's epic of epic proportions. So whether we're talking about that or we're talking about racial justice and the, and the issues that are in the, in the United States are just so rampant uh, around the racial inequities. Um, these become important focal points um, for the work of our community and our congregation. So how do you balance in Jewish life the ritual and the, I suppose, the social action, the rights and the rights, if you will? We, we talked about religious rituals as R-I-T-E-S, rights, versus the Jewish impetus to fight for social justice in the world, or do they need to be balanced? Well, I don't know what balance is. I guess that's what I, I mean. It, to me, they, they're expressions of the same thing. I mean, marching, marching for civil rights uh, or for uh, equality uh, for women, let's say, is is an important ritual expression of my Jewish values and my Jewish ethics. Um, you know, I, I'm always fond. You know, I mean, it's often said, right? We often repeat the Abraham Joshua Heschel phrases of praying with our feet, but but I think that's actually true. I mean, let's be honest. In the, in the United States, and I, I don't, I think the numbers are a little different in Canada, but in the United States, Jews are more likely not to go to synagogue to pray, not to go to synagogue to be involved in rituals. Um, 
and I think there's I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But I but I do think that we have to think about ritual in the broadest sense. Hmm. It isn't just rituals aren't just uh, lighting Shabbat candles and saying the blessing over the wine or, or reciting or davening three times a day. There are rituals for that that are Jewish that are embodied in social justice. So when you know when our congregation uh, takes part in the pride marches or uh, in a march for uh, social justice for farm workers and a protest uh, for the inequities that farm workers are going through or refuse to serve uh, certain products at our own egg Shabbats when we when we have them we're not doing them in, in the pandemic time but but to think about fair trade chocolate and fair trade coffee and what does that mean and to, that's living those Jewish values it's just not an exercise it's about grounding grounding those actions as an as an expression and those are rituals as well yeah i love that idea of those as rituals which actually takes me back to what we were talking about before the break that's in the shema where it says that you should bind the commandments on your hands and on your mind in other words there are some things that we think about in certain ways because we're jews and some things that we do in certain ways because we're Jews and that ultimately Judaism is the amalgamation of all of these rituals and um, and social justice, as well as the conversations that we have with each other about things that matter. No, I, I, mean, I think that's exactly right. And I, I guess I just want to add as a caution, I don't think we should get rid of ritual. I want to be really clear. I think there is something to powerful about Jewish rituals. Um, you know, we think about all the rituals surrounding death and grief and mourning, uh, rituals around healing, saying a mishaberach for somebody, say praying beside somebody's bed. We, we think about the Shabbat rituals. We think about the rituals uh, for a wedding, you know, the, the bride and the groom going to a mikvah to immerse as they enter this new state of life. I think there's something powerful, transformative, healing about doing actual Jewish rituals that deepen the spirituality, deepen the meaning. But I don't want us to only think of ritual in a very narrow way, because there's something incredibly powerful about taking all of the members of your congregation and marching for social justice um, and and taking out taking that opportunity to frame it in those ways as well. Yeah, your point is really well taken. And, and actually, that um, segues us nicely into talking about your book, which is both, I think, an expression of social justice and of ritual. It's called Mishkan Ge'ava. You're the editor of Mishkan Ge'ava, which means where pride dwells. And this book is on its cover. It says it's a celebration of LGBTQ Jewish life and ritual. And as I was reading through it, it seems to me it really is. It's a series of blessings and readings that are meant to put the LGBTQ experience into a Jewish context. Yes, it's a it's centering the voice of LGBTQ Jews and allies and creating a Jewish language for LGBTQ Jewish experiences. So you think of this, Micah, when you go to the Shabbat dinner table, we have a whole series of rituals, right? We light the candles, we say the Kiddush, we bless our children, we bless our spouses. If you're in a same gender relationship, you can't read Eshed Chayot you know, the woman of valor. Well, maybe you will if you're two women, but it doesn't work for two men. What do you say? And maybe it's not exactly the right language, right? It says her husband shall rise up and bless her. Maybe you have children, maybe you don't, right? Children shall praise you, Proverbs 31, that's woman of valor. So 
in Mishkan Ge'eva, where pride dwells, we reimagined what would a spouse say to another at the Shabbat dinner table um, when it doesn't look like uh, a traditional, perhaps, family, mm -hmm. um, as well as issues for people who are transgender and non-binary. Uh, how do we affirm their humanity? Again, going back to this principle, but Selim Elohim, everyone's created in God's image. At the core of this idea, how do we go back and then affirm their humanity? How do they affirm their own humanity, particularly in a world that's often hostile? Mm -hmm. and so um, one of the beauties of this uh, prayer book, it's not a C-door, it's not a full C-door, it's meant as a supplementary uh, prayer book to, to a C-door, but again, giving voice to um, private moments, like how do you Jewishly affirm if you're transgender, uh, starting to take hormone treatments? What's the right prayer for that when you're affirming your inside and your outside as God made you? Um, and then, or things for celebrating uh, what we call the gay holiday cycle, right? The, we know the Jewish holiday cycle, right? Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Simchat Torah, Hanukkah, et cetera, et cetera. But there are LGBTQ moments as well. Pride Month, Pride Day, uh, Transgender Day of Visibility, uh, World AIDS Day is was widely observed throughout the gay and lesbian world. Um, so well, there's lots of prayers and rituals, things that might be used in an interfaith service or within your own congregational setting for communal opportunities for observances as well. Yeah, there are two moments in here or two passages that I found really powerful. One of them you wrote, actually, it's on page five, and it's your rewriting of the um, Ahavat Olam blessing, the blessing of God's love for us, which is part of the evening service, where you have in here a line that you actually just alluded to this. It says, for you, eternal one made us made us as we are. And I thought, what a powerful message of love in a blessing of love for a community that has so often been told the opposite of that. Right. And still is. There are still many religious traditions that do not affirm LGBTQ people. And I'm so proud of our reform Jewish movement, who not only includes or tolerates, but is embracing. And that is a whole different kind of conversation. It's not about tolerance. Don't, you know, I'm not going to, it's not about you're just going to tolerate my presence in your midst. You're going to embrace me. You're going to seek my opinion, seek my voice. And that's what this prayer book does. It, you know, it shares a name with all of the reform prayer books. Uh, they all start with Mishkan, the tabernacle, where the place where God dwells. And uh, so this is now an official prayer book of the reform movement that's part giving authentic Jewish voice to the LGBTQ experience. Right, and contextualizing moments of life in a Jewish context, and th which actually brings me to my second blessing that I really loved, which is on page 92, and it's the Mishaberach for coming out. Yes. Where, what is a Mishaberach? Mishaberach is, we usually think of Mishaberach as the blessing for the sick, but a Mishaberach is actually a, a congregational blessing for an individual being called to the Torah, right? So you can have a Mishaberach for the sick or Mishaberach for a, a baby naming or for an Ufruf being called to the Torah before your wedding. So here's a Mishaberach blessing that that brings blessings upon a person as they go through that, that incredible moment of coming out. And I think to sanctify that moment, to put it in a Jewish context, to say this is a holy moment, that again, it's a really powerful message to send of, as you say, not just tolerance, but of inclusion, that we're looking to see 
the world through the eyes of the person who's now standing on the bima. Especially because like so many people, you know, when somebody comes out to me, I always say mazel tov, congratulations. Hmm. Because there's so much negativity around it. It's such, there's a secret, there's shame associated with it often still. And, and, and families and the individual need to know there is no shame in being a queer person. It's just, it, it just is who you are without judgment. And that by having a blessing, it elevates that moment, as they say, into the life of our people. You're not outside the Jewish tent, you're fully inside the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. It makes it not even just a, not, not even just not a negative moment, but it makes it a holy moment. It makes it a holy moment and, and sends an important message to the community about who we are when this is done publicly in a, in a, in a congregation of what our values are. Again, going back to what are our values, what are our ethics, how we live them and how we play them out right? Lest anyone think that there is anything to be ashamed. There is nothing to be ashamed of for who you love, right? Be proud of who you are. Be proud of who God made, made you to be. And let, let us move forward with that positivity. Right. Which of course is the title here, Mishkan Ge'ava, right? The place where, where pride dwells. Right. And that's, that is the place where God dwells. I love that. So on a, on a different topic, I know that in addition to being as being a rabbi, you work as an executive coach. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about that, if you don't mind telling us. Thanks, thank you. For the last couple of years, I've been uh, uh, well, probably the three years now. I've been not only studying through my credentials, which I have through the International Coaching Federation, but you know, I'm celebrating over 35 years in the active rabbinate, and um, I have a, a kind of a unique slice of the pie in terms of my experience you know both not only serving in 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 congregations uh of you know 300 households or so so those those are kind of smaller medium congregations but i've also you know had as you know like a, a positions at, at national and international leadership i was right. the first openly gay person to be president of the central conference of american rabbis which is our international rabbinical association for the reform movement uh, and the oldest rabbinical association in north america uh, of any of any denomination so I, i've had a unique opportunity to to be part of organizational life at the highest levels of our denomination and many other organizations i've sat on many boards i've started many organizations as well so i kind of have a unique perspective about what it means to be uh, an executive director of an organization a ceo of an organization as well as as well as a rabbi and so um, i've had the really great privilege of working with the, not only rabbis but nonprofit executives and ministers uh, of other denominations to help them achieve kind of greater leadership and greater confidence in their sacred mission and in their leadership, um, kind of to reach the next goals. And so that's been a, a really wonderful opportunity. You know, a coach, most people are maybe, maybe people are familiar with a life coach. Um, and a life coach really, what a life coach really does is help you ascertain the goals that you want to work on and help you hold you accountable to what you set as the goals. And it's no different when we're talking about executive coaching. This is an opportunity to gain deeper insights and skills into your own leadership and to also how do you step into more roles within your work sphere. So, so it's been a very rewarding. I've loved working with um, both the nonprofit executives and clergy. Um, I've done a lot of consulting with some clergy teams 
on how they can work better together uh, and in also in some nonprofit teams of, of when there's not been good communication when they're trying to work on a strategic plan. Um, and so uh, this has always been a part of my rabbinate that I've loved it has been the organizational part and the leadership part. And, I'm, and so now I'm starting to transition to do that one on one and with uh, individuals and with groups. You actually just preempted my next question. I was going to ask you if you if you see similarities between your rabbinic work and your coaching work. And, and I'll tell you why I'm asking, because I, I work with a coach. Uh, sometimes, and I was I was working with my coach actually earlier today, and I had written out, you know, a bunch of questions, a bunch of answers to questions about you know values and leadership and things like that. And she keeps asking me things like, "Tell me more about that. How do you feel about that? How does that work with that?" And it occurred to me that's exactly what I do with people that are converting, with people with couples that are getting married, where they're we're helping them think about values and about how those values play out. In their lives and so i'm not trained as a coach and yet i can see a lot of similarities in terms of what rabbis do in terms of helping empower people to live the lives that they'd like to be living and that that is i mean we are a spiritual coach in fact the in, in the methodist church they're really working uh at least in in the u.s to uh, help people to uh, every pastor to be a coach uh, use the coaching skills as part of the toolbox, if you will, uh, to helping couples or to be an end of life coach, to helping families at that really critical time or couples and to use coaching skills in that. And, and there is a there is a, a essence to coaching. It is a lot of questioning and inquiry uh, and and help. And it is also about listening. Right. Which, of course, being a rabbi is about listening and takes us back to the Shema, because it turns out being a Jew is about listening to our values and to hear God's voice in the oneness of the universe. Correct. And that that is really uh, what I do as a coach is I'm a really good listener about what you as an individual say you want to achieve and maybe just can't see the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. So together we listen to your words and I help tease out what those next steps that you want to take to actualize your strengths and to improve your weaknesses. I love that. So I want to ask you two more questions. They're about you and your approach to Judaism. One is about ritual and one is about books. So I'm curious, is there one Jewish ritual that you find particularly meaningful? Well, you know, this is, this is, I didn't make this up, but you know, I, I'm someone who says the Shema every night before I go to bed. Hmm. Done it since I'm a child, and I have to thank my parents of blessed memory for that. For that, because every night when I was a child, you know, I might have gotten a story or read a book. So they read a book to me, or my father would make up a series of stories for me. Um, but we always said the Shema together every night before I went to bed. Uh, this this affirmation that's so much a part of our tradition that we're talking about in this week's Torah portion, and 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 I, you know, I still do that. It's still part of who I am as a, as a Jew. Not forget the rabbi part. Uh, even if I wasn't a rabbi, it's a very it's very much about that affirming each and every day, not only my connection deeply with my people, but with my God. And um, as the kind of the last thing I say at night, uh, and to reaffirm even even in the midst of after having maybe a really crappy day, um, that I can have those few moments of meditation and of prayer um, to reset myself as I go to sleep at night. I'm pretty sure that's why the rabbis chose or someone chose this passage to be what we read every single day, twice a day. 
Yes, I, I, I'm convinced of it. And, you know, I, I often, people who are in crisis, when they come to talk to me, I often ask them to just use it as a reset prayer, mm-hmm. you know, to take, to take pause and to use it as their mantra, if you will, um, when they're panicked, when they're filled with anxiety, and to reaffirm their sense of groundedness and connection with our God. And, and the rabbis were wise to use it. I agree. It's really powerful. And you're my second guest in a row to talk about the Shema as a mantra. So clearly this is something that's on our minds right now. Maybe in this pandemic world, we all need a little mantra in our lives. We need grounding in this time that's been so, uh, so completely traumatic and upsetting and horrific and tragic around the world. It continues to be um, you know, as the inequ- as we see the inequities of which countries get vaccines and which countries don't, um, you know, cons- continues to be uh, horrific in many places. So it's far from over, uh, and yet we human beings each need to know a sense of connectedness, uh, even in even as we've been isolated from one another. So I think for me, the Shema helps to do that. I love that. So last question: In addition to your book, which is important. What book do we all need to read? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, right now I'm reading a lot about trauma, to be honest about you, about how we hold trauma in the body um, and how, how, especially coming in, in this pandemic and as at least we're starting to slowly reemerge, I've been reading a lot of books about how we heal from trauma. And um, so I don't know if I have just one book to share with you, but I think this is something that we have to pay a lot of attention to because I think many of us are not even aware of how much trauma we've been holding for the last year and a half uh, since the pandemic truly emerged um, and and we've been so isolated from one another. And even if we have been lucky enough to get vaccinated and, and are lucky enough to be out in the world again, um, after having been shut out, shut down for so long, um, there are a lot of fears as people reemerge, and that's normal and natural. So, I, I would I would say is to do some education about uh, about trauma and to um, really have a, a sense of of that it's okay to be scared to go back out in the world, um, but that you shouldn't you shouldn't ignore it. So I, I guess what the one of the books that I've been reading is The Body Keeps the Score. It's kind of the classic book, um, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. So uh, I, I, it's not necessarily a Jewish book, uh, obviously, but um, I, I would encourage people to become familiar with the issues around trauma and, and how it affects our daily lives. Yeah, I think it's going to be really important. We are going to be an entire traumatized generation having gone through this together. I really worry about our kids mm-hmm. uh, and the younger they are almost and, and teenagers and, you know, a teenage years, you, you need to be with other kids. That's the whole point of being a teenager, right? Is to leave the home, to start to venture out and to connect with people your own age. And, you know, our, our younger kids below below 11 and 12 who still don't have vaccines and and uh, their school years were upended and, and trying to figure out some kids thrive online, some kids don't. So I, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, effects long-term fallout. And so I think as parents, grandparents, teachers, we all need to be aware of it. 
Yeah, I think our society is going to have a lot of work to do to support these young people. I have three teenagers myself, as as I think you know, and I, I've watched them struggle their way through this pandemic and them and all their friends and, and all the rest of us. And so I think we really are, we're going to have to be able to acknowledge the trauma in order for there to be any growth that comes after it. Um, and that it, it is across the board. And certainly some communities have been hit much harder than others, which means we we simply all need to support each other in figuring out how to grow out of this this really difficult past year and a half. Agreed. I agree with you. Well, Rabbi Denise Egger, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your wisdom. This has been such a pleasure catching up with you today. Great to see you. And I wish you health and healing and wholeness for your family. And uh, always a great opportunity to talk with you, Micah. Likewise. Thanks, Denise. Well, that's our conversation for this week about the Parsha Va'erchanan. My deep thanks to Rabbi Denise Eger for joining me in conversation today. The book she mentioned is called Mishkan Ga'ava, and if that's too hard to spell, you can look it up by the English title Where Pride Dwells, a celebration of LGBTQ Jewish life and ritual. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.